Well, amen and good morning, church. It's good to be with you again this morning. I missed you last week as we are in the middle of that flu season. It's going around, and I throw on top of that a nice little tooth that needs to uh, have a root canal. Uh, and it's been a fun few weeks uh, for me, so I hate not being able to gather with you. I do want you to know, though, that uh, even on Sunday, maybe I snuck in, and since I was sick and feeling sorry for myself, asked for a link to the service. And I was pacing about my living room uh, with you last Sunday morning uh, as I watched and uh, as uh, Dustin uh, filled in admirably and taught God's word to us faithfully. So, brother, thank you for serving the church uh, in that way. But I'm excited this morning to continue our study in the book of Matthew, a series we're calling Authentically Christian, Following King Jesus Together. Authentically Christian following King Jesus together. Now, this is our third uh, sermon uh, in, in studying through Jesus' fourth discourse in the book of Matthew. So Matthew structured around five different discourses. We're in Matthew chapter 18, that fourth discourse, and this is our third sermon in the midst of that discourse. Now, this discourse uh, itself is talking about characteristics of this new Christian community, that is the church that Christ promises to build, that he promised to build in Matthew chapter 16 when the apostle Peter confessed that he was the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus promised to Peter, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And then Matthew chapter 18 now, he's demonstrating and he's giving forth characteristics that describe this new covenant community that is created. And so we tried to summarize and put this together as we've studied it, three primary characteristics that Christ says will mark off and set apart his people uh, as those who are following him in this new covenant community. The first characteristic was in Matthew chapter 18, verse 1 to 14, and it was humility. And that, that uh, even as he talked about that characteristic, it was sparked because of a question that arose from the disciples about greatness. And they asked the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus turned the whole definition of greatness upside down grabbed a child, put them in the midst of them, and said, hey, if you want to be great, you must be humbly dependent upon me like this child is. So our thought of kind of climbing to the top and dominating those under our charge and what the world uh, in its greatness looks like, Jesus turns it totally upside down and says, humble dependence demonstrates greatness in my kingdom. And that humble de dependence is on display even in the fact that you take seriously your own personal sin that you want to put it to death, that you hate your own indwelling remaining sin, and that you're after, and, and Jesus uses extreme kind of metaphorical language of plucking out your eyes and cutting off your hands in order to put to death the remaining sin in you. And so that's, again, demonstrating this humility that must mark and be a characteristic of the people of God. But a part of that humility also was the fact that when sheep go astray, that the good shepherd goes after them. And people, uh, the people of God ought to be those kinds of people who are concerned about straying sheep. So humility, that was the first characteristic. But the second characteristic we looked at in, in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 to 20 was accountability. Christ instructed, this is what it looks like to hold one another accountable in the church. I'm forming this new community that's marked and set apart by humility, but also by accountability. That you're to live differently when you call Christ Lord and King. That when Jesus is master, it transforms your life. You don't, it's not just something you say with your lips, but your whole life is different. And when you live in sin and you live in such a way that says Jesus is not king, but something else is king, then the church, this new covenant community, ought to move towards you and call you to repentance. Now, he demonstrated and showed us that we want to be gentle and careful and keep sin even amongst each other when we're confronting sin as private as possible, as long as possible. And so he said, you, you go and tell your brother his fault. If he repents, you've won your brother. The conversation's over. If not, then take two or three witnesses alone to establish the charges. If he listens, you've won your brother conversation over. But if he won't even listen to them, tell it to the whole church. And if he won't even listen to the whole church, 
Then treat him as you would a Gentile tax collector. Remove him from the church. Remove him from the fellowship of the community because he's demonstrated with his life that, he, that Jesus is not king, that something else is king. He's been called to repentance. He's refused to repent, and therefore you must remove him. You must use the keys of the kingdom, which has been given to the church, and, and exercise accountability in the local church. So humility, characteristic number one. Accountability, characteristic number two. Today we come to the third characteristic. And it follows brilliantly with what Christ has taught us about having humility and then accountability. Well, what do we do when the person we're holding accountable, maybe we do have to remove them, but what do we do when they repent and return? Well, we forgive them. The third characteristic is forgiveness. So if you're a visitor looking for a church and you want to think, man, I want to find an authentic church that actually follows Jesus of the Bible, not just Jesus of culture, no matter what culture that is, whether that's conservative culture, liberal culture, no, no, I want Jesus of Bible. Well, Jesus says, these are characteristics you ought to look for in an authentic Christian community following me. Humility, accountability, and forgiveness. A people marked by overwhelming, extravagant forgiveness for one another in sin. This is how we're to respond to one another. If we humbly hold one another accountable, and one confesses and repents of sin. We are to be a people of forgiveness. This is the next characteristic we will talk about as the Lord Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 18. And particularly through this parable of the unmerciful servant. So let's pray and ask for help. And we will look at this forgiveness that should set us apart as the people of Christ. Father, again, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Asking us for help. Guide us into truth. Your word is truth. Fix our eyes on Jesus, for he's the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to see him. Help us to behold him. Help us to hear him. Help us to obey him. Help us to bring glory to him and good to the world. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. So let's set the context a little bit. Uh, again, if you noticed, even as our sister was reading the scripture, this teaching section in this discourse begins with a question, it's, and it's our boy Peter. Again, good old Peter, always coming in. And notice kind of in classic Peter fashion, he sets it up, and you can't help but laugh a little bit because you see your own errors and sin in the reflection of the mirror that is Peter in his life and his interactions. Verse 21, Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Again, our brother Peter, always the good spokesman for the disciples, asked their rabbi, this new rabbi, about forgiveness. And he comes to this rabbi and he says, okay, we've talked about accountability. We've talked about repentance. And so I'm assuming we got to talk about forgiveness. Okay, rabbi, how many times should I forgive my brother or my sister if he sins against me or she sins against me? As many as seven times. And with this question that you can assume, Peter's got a little bit of, uh, uh, of pride in the question. In the question. Because common rabbis later in their day would even say, hey, forgive people three times, and then after that, you don't have to a fourth. So Peter says, how many times should I forgive? Seven? And my man gives it like, I'm going to double what's the common thought, and then even add one, just to see a little more pious. How many times ought, ought to I forgive my brother? As many as seven times? Peter, again, is thinking about, okay, if we're in community... And there's going to be accountability. There's going to be sin. There's going to be repentance. Well, then how often ought there to be forgiveness and reconciliation? How many times qualified as the limit for King Jesus in this new covenant community that is the church that he is forming? 
Jesus gives an answer in verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you 70, uh, seven times, but 77, or some tra- uh, translations might say 70 times seven. Most likely he says uh, 77 times. And his point is not the actual number. He's like, you ought not be counting. <laughs> That's his point. It's unlimited. You're thinking seven, and you're thinking of yourself to be pious and extra forgiving. I'm telling you, you're not even in the right ballpark. (laughs) You're not even in the right vicinity. You ought not even be counting. So let's use this number, and it's probably a shout-out back to uh, uh, Lamech in uh, Genesis chapter 4, who's talking about his vengeance being 77 times. And Jesus is now inverting and saying, no, no, forgiveness in this new community is unlimited. We don't Take count of how many sins against us and how many times we have to forgive. There's an entire new community built on an entire new kind of forgiveness. And so Jesus gives this parable to illustrate this answer. Peter, you've come thinking you were extra pious. You're not even in the vicinity of what I'm teaching now as your rabbi, as your king, as your, uh, the one you're following. So let me give you this parable. We're going to look at this parable in three movements and conclude with several implications and applications about what forgiveness ought to look like in the people of God. Movement number one, the merciful king's extravagant forgiveness of an unpayable debt. The merciful king's extravagant forgiveness of an unpayable debt. Verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one who was brought to him owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring, "Have, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. Now notice that again, Jesus is answering this question Peter has posed. And he's going to talk to them about this new characteristic of forgiveness that ought to typify the people of God in this new covenant community. And he tells this parable, and he tells a parable of the kingdom of heaven, and says it's like a king who wants to settle accounts. So he's speaking now to Peter and saying, when we're going to talk about forgiveness, we need to think in light of judgment day, when the king settles accounts with his followers. So in the end, when you give an account for your entire life, Jesus says, I'm going to talk about this king, and it's time for him to settle up with all the servants in his kingdom. They're to give an account for their entire life. This is a parable about Judgment Day when all of Christ's followers give account for their lives. Now, you need to know something, that that 10,000 was the largest Greek uh, numeral. So to use the word, uh, the number 10,000 is to use the highest number. So uh, a bazillion zillion, maybe your children would say. (laughs) But 10,000, that's the highest numeral to use. So use this number, this, this large number, and then he talks about talent. A man owes 10,000 talents. Now, a talent was the largest monetary unit. It was equivalent to about 20 years' wages for a common laborer. So this debt, when you put these two together, was so much that it would take him about 200,000 years' worth of his wages to pay off the debt. This, This servant owed more money than all of Palestine possessed. For our time period, just think billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars. And you're just a common worker. Bottom line, he could not pay it if, even if he and his entire family was given in 3,500 lifetimes. There's no hope to pay this debt. It's so insurmountable. It's so massive. It's so enormous that there's, no, there's not even enough money in the world he knows of to pay for this debt. It's that massive. Friend, I wonder if you feel the immensity 
of the debt that your sin is against a holy and perfect God? Are you aware that a simple lie is a sin against an infinitely holy God? Are you aware that wasting time on your phone is time he's given to you to bring him glory and good to the world? Are you aware that your immorality and your impurity has placed you underneath a sin debt you could never pay back even in 3,500 lifetimes? The servant in our parable, though irrational, does the only thing anyone in so desperate a situation could do. Beg for patience until he could pay the debt. Notice again verse 26. He fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me. I'll pay you everything. Friend, have you ever felt this kind of desperation before God? Even again, just consider your sins just this week. You didn't get away with one of them. There's not one that you got away with. They were all seen by the holy eyes of glory. Every instance of deceit. The pride and arrogance that gleam down your nose at other people you see beneath you. The lazy neglect of your responsibilities. The guilt you see so easily in others that you conveniently overlook in yourself. The unspeakable lusts in the depth of your mind's eye. The insatiable greed that always wants more. The lack of gratitude even on a holiday that's set aside for its cultivation. And we're just thinking about the last week. What about the last month? The last year? Your entire life? What about the life in front of you? The days ahead? Do you not feel the overwhelming nature of the sin that you owe to a holy God? 10,000 talents and more. Billions and billions and billions. Now the question then becomes, well, how does the king feel about this debt? You ought to feel crushed under it. But how does he feel about this debt you owe to him? How does our master and king feel in this parable even? Look at verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, if you've been at this church for very long, you know I have a few favorite Greek words. Telestai, it is finished, being one of them. The other one, splanknizomai which is pity or compassion. Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus looked upon the crowds, he saw they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He felt splunknizomai, compassion, pity for them. Guess what word shows up in verse 27? And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave the debt. Our God and king looks at his sheep, we his sheep, He sees the incalculable debt we owe because of our sin. He knows we cannot pay him back in 3,500 lifetimes. And do you know what he feels? Pity. Compassion. His heart, his bowels going out with affection and love and mercy and kindness and compassion directed at the very ones he ought to crush. He feels pity. Our God is a God who has big mercy for big sinners. Our God is a God who has big patience for those who are slow to see their sin. And so we fall to our knees and we beg for patience. And what does he give us? Something infinitely better, merciful forgiveness. The servant says, please, I'll pay it all back. He can't 3,500 lifetimes. This is comical. It's comical for you to think you could get yourself back in right relationship with God by doing good things, comical. 
3,500 lifetimes, you couldn't do it. I don't care how much good you do, it could not erase the bad you've done. And yet, our natural bent is to say, just give me some time. Just give me some time. Let me work on me. I'll do better. But the king says, whoa, 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 no, no, no. It's not just time. I grant you forgiveness. I grant you mercy. Don't spend 3,500 lifetimes trying to pay me back. You'll never get there. Jesus paid it all, all to him, I owe. He's the one who cleansed me and washed me white as snow. So he sends forth, he says, no, no, no. He felt pity. He felt splonchnizma. He felt compassion. He felt mercy. And he said, no, no, no. You're not just getting patience. I'll give you infinitely better. You're getting forgiveness. My God, what grace. The master paid the bill for all of your sin. All of the ones you were uncomfortable thinking about just a moment ago, they're all paid for in full. The penalty in Christ has been paid. And so we can read Psalm 103, verse 10 through 14, and know if you're in Christ, this is true about you. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Do you see the merciful king's extravagant forgiveness of your unpayable debt? Friends, the gospel is good news. The gospel is good news. (laughs) You're forgiven in Christ. There's no more wrath left for you. He doesn't say, hey, I'll be patient, work hard, and pay me back. He says, you can't pay me back ever, but I got you. I'll forgive you and set you free that my love and my affection might be poured out on you continuously forever. Look to my grace and my mercy, my compassion, my splunkness and my rest in my finished work. Rest in my mercy and my forgiveness. And know that you're forgiven. You're set free. No longer to fear the wrath of God. For it has been poured out on the cross of Christ. We know this side of the cross. We know this side of this this parable. That Jesus paid the penalty in full for us. That he satisfied God's righteous wrath. That he made sure God's justice was upheld. And that our sin, our life was paid for with death. Just the death of our substitute, our Savior, our Lamb. Who came to live for us and we celebrate this Advent. That he was born to die. That he came for us, that he really entered into our weak and frail and busted and broken sinful world, lived a perfectly holy sinless life, and then died on the cross for sinners who deserve his wrath. He really did that, and on the third day, he really got up. And therefore, God can say, forgiven. You are forgiven. You are free. You need not fear my righteous wrath any longer. It's been poured out. The wrath cup has been emptied on the cross of Christ. The wrath cup has been poured out. And now the cup of salvation is yours, free to drink. This is good news. This is gospel. Now, a person who's received this kind of grace, this kind of forgiveness, how ought that transform how they live and interact with other sinners? You would understand and assume, wait a minute, if I've received this much grace and mercy and forgiveness, and God really does treat me as his beloved child, though I've done nothing to earn it, if he really has poured out his righteous wrath on his son in my place so that he might pour out his unending love on me because of Christ and his righteous life, if that's happened, how ought I to deal with people who sin against me? If this grace and mercy really has come to me, what am I to do with it when I deal with other sinners? Well... 
not respond like the ungrateful servant in Jesus' parable. Second movement. Extravagant forgiveness turned into merciless unforgiveness. Extravagant forgiveness turned into merciless unforgiveness. Look at verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him into prison until he should pay the debt. So the extravagantly forgiven servant turns to a fellow servant, a peer, who owes him. Again, they're peers. They have the same master, the same king. Who knows? Maybe even word of this king's uh, forgiveness to this servant has spread. Maybe he's thinking, wait a minute, no, 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 I know he owed billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of debt to the master, and I know I owe him a chunk of change, but maybe since he's been set free and forgiven, maybe he'll be lenient with me. Maybe he'll be kind and great. Maybe he'll be patient with me. Maybe he'll be merciful to me. Maybe he'll pay it forward and cancel my debt. Now let's talk about this debt comparison just for a second. Denarius was a wage for one day's labor. So he was owed 100 denarii, or about three and a half months' salary from a fellow servant. So again, he's just been set free for, let's say, $6 billion worth of debt against the king. And now he goes, and let's just say you make $45,000 a year, and, and, uh, and, and we'll use that kind of as a, as, a, as a paradigm. So he owes about 15 grand. So he's been set free of $6 billion worth of debt, and he turns to another servant, a friend of his, a peer of his, who owes him 15 grand. And he says, hey, pay me what you owe. And what does this servant do? Now listen, think about this debt for just a minute. It's substantial, but not insurmountable. Right? So it's three and a half months worth of salary. That's a substantial amount of money. If you only make 45 grand a year and somebody owes you 15, that's a lot of money. But it's not unpayable. It's like, no, no, no. If you'll be patient with them, they can eventually pay that off. It's a, it's a large chunk of change. It's a serious amount of debt, but it's a payable amount of debt. Where you've just been set free of an unpayable amount of debt. Normal people can't get six billion. <laughs> like, if you make 45 grand a year, what is six billion to you? That's a dream in the clouds. <laughs> like, there's nothing tangible about it. So, this amount of money, this amount of debt is substantial, but again, not impossible. It's significant, but, but it's, it's able to be paid off. It's, it's legit, but it's not lethal. It's not deadly. It's not a death sentence to owe this kind of money. It's possible to pay it back, even if it'll take significant time. Brothers and sisters, this is true when a brother or sister in Christ sins against you. You both have the same master. And this master cleared your unpayable debt against himself with extravagant mercy and forgiveness. But we're all still in the process as Christians. We're still growing in the grace and mercy that, that made us, that saved us and made us belong to God. Again, remember the first characteristic I talked about that Matthew's ta- Jesus has taught us in Matthew 18 is humility. Humility partly evidenced by us putting the remaining sin in us to death and holding one another accountable. Why do you got to hold one another accountable? Because sheep go astray. And there is remaining sin that we're all still fighting against. So you should assume if I get up against people that are still having to put their sin to death and who might go astray, that they're probably going to sin against you. You should make that assumption. 
You should assume you're going to sin against them. That should just be an assumption. Why? Because we're still sinful people in a broken world. We've been set free in Christ. We've had the declaration of it is finished, uh, given to our life. We've been given uh, the, the reward of Christ's suffering. But man, in this life, we're still being sanctified. We're still growing. It's been declared to us to, that we are uh, holy as he is holy. But we are not yet inexperienced holy as he is holy. We're being sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ. So it shouldn't come as a surprise when you get sinned against in the church. Now, to be clear, church hurt and abuse uh, in the church are real, and they are wicked. We repudiate them, even that wickedness, even in our study today. But I would like to just point out for a second how popular and easy it is to dunk on the church right now. Cancel culture, no doubt, has the church in its scope. Because cancel culture has the feelings of the individual self on the throne. And the church has Jesus on the throne. And that collision will always make the church a central target of cancel culture. But here's the irony of the whole thing that I just want you to see. Even if you're not a Christian, I'm glad you're here. And I want you to wrestle and just think honestly with, with me for a second about this reality. Cancel culture is the most self-righteous culture that it could possibly exist. Like, it's excommunication with no hope of restoration. It's judgment with no hope of forgiveness. It's all punishment, no mercy. So be careful having a quick trigger with the church. Know that you understand to be in close proximity to any sinner is to get sinned against. Think about this. Husbands and wives, you expect your spouse is going to sin against you. Like this is not shocking to you, but you love them. You understand that you're in that close proximity, it's going to happen. Parents and children sin against one another. Our most beloved relationships, we experience sin against one another. This is not shocking to sinful human beings in a broken world. So why is it that we think we come into the church and the, nobody in that church better not sin against me or a bunch of hypocrites? Every other relationship you're in that's significant, you sin against and they sin against you. Why do you think you get to come into this community and suddenly sin should evaporate? Well, because the world wants to have the, the church as the target. They want the church canceled. They don't want Jesus on the throne, anything but Jesus. But in here, we have Christ on the throne. And we understand, man, we need humility. Why? Because we're still sinful. <laughs> we understand we need accountability. Why? Because we're still sinful. And we understand we need forgiveness. Why? Because we're still sinful. We're still fighting, and we need help in this fight. So don't be shocked. Don't assume you join a faith family and magically they all stop sinning when you're around. None of them expect you to magically stop sinning. <laughs> like, no, it brings you in such close proximity, you should, you should expect this is going to happen. So in every community that exists on the planet, you will sin and be sinned against, and that will hurt. And that happens in the church. So then how do we respond? There are going to be peers that have sinned against you, just like in this parable. So what does it mean to be newly forgiven and set free? How do we respond when people sin against us and there really is a debt against us, a real $15,000 debt against us? Now again, remember this servant has just been set free of his multi-billion dollar debt, but notice he seizes, chokes, and imprisons his debtor. Cancel culture 101. I should be forgiven of my flaws and failures, but not you, not them. Notice the debtor made the exact same plea. Have patience with me, and I will pay you. And again, in this case, it was possible. Difficult, but possible. 
So when somebody sins against you, it really is sin. It really is a debt owed to you. It really does hurt you. It really does cost you. But at the same time, compared to your sin against an infinitely holy God, it's nothing. So we're not minimizing when somebody sins against you. We're just saying, no, just compare that on the scale of your sin against an infinitely holy God. And it's massively different. If somebody sins against you or even has a few sins against you, you can number them. You can't number your sins against God. And also it's a sin against a sinful peer. You sinned against a sinless God and king. It's in the same category, but nowhere close to the same vicinity of guilt and sin. So therefore, it's doubly wicked to be a recipient of extravagant forgiveness and yet a hoarder of it. That's doubly wicked. You've received extravagant forgiveness, and you're going to say, this is just for me, not for you. I'm going to hoard this to myself. It's almost like you had a car wreck, and you killed a child in the car wreck. And the parent of that child bought you a free car. And then you got that free car and you went to the grocery store and somebody dinged it with a grocery cart. And you said, I want them locked up. Like, no, no, no. Did they just ding your new car? Yes. Is that wrong? Yes. Does it, maybe it's going to cost you a lot of money to fix? Yes. Is it anything comparable to what you've done? No. So both can be true. They really sinned against you. They really hurt you. And it's really nothing compared to your sin and offense against God. Those two things can be simultaneously true. And so we ought to feel the serious debt of the one, but compare it and think about it in light of the serious debt against our God and King. And again, he makes this, notice he makes the same plea for mercy that his fellow sinner did. Be patient with me and I'll pay you back. And he could have. He really could have. The original servant couldn't have, and he got forgiven. This one actually could have. All he had to do was just be patient and say, you know what? I've been forgiven of billions and billions and billions of dollars of debt. All right, I'll be patient with you. Pay me back. I'll be patient with you. That's, that's an option. That had been less wicked than the one he chose. But instead, verse 30, he refused. Went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, I just want you to notice how withholding forgiveness is counterproductive. <laughs> How's your brother or sister going to actually pay the payable debt when you lock him up in the prison of unforgiveness? How's the relationship going to be restored when you got him locked up in the prison of unforgiveness? It's not. Because you keep him locked up. Won't let him out of prison. <laughs> and so in this case, it's like, no, no, get locked up and pay me. Well, maybe somebody will love you enough to then pay, the, pay your debt off for you. It's just counterproductive to the relationship. Withholding forgiveness from a brother or sister in the faith when you've been forgiven by the same master for incalculable debt to him prevents the healing the relationship needs by locking it up in unforgiveness. Extravagant forgiveness from the king turned into merciless unforgiveness for your brother or sister is doubly wicked. The third movement, merciless unforgiveness, will receive the king's just judgment. Merciless unforgiveness will receive the king's just judgment. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. So again, these fellow servants that understand, wait a minute, you're both servants of the king. We saw what he set you free from. And then we saw you choke and lock that dude up for the debt he owed to you. Friends, the sinful human heart is full of vile, inconsistent, and hypocritical legalism. It just is. Dead and rebellious human heart naturally demands mercy from God for me and my sin against him and justice from God for their sin against me. Do you see this? 
This is the nature of the, the, the natural sinful response of the human heart is, God, I deserve mercy. That's a contradiction. I deserve forgiveness. Contradiction. I deserve grace. Contradiction. They deserve justice for what they did against me. But this is the nature of the sinful human heart that's dead, that doesn't understand your sin or God's holiness, that doesn't understand the weightiness of the predicament you find yourself in. The sinful human heart screams, turn a blind eye to my sin and cancel them for theirs. Isn't that what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 7, verse 3. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the king summons this unmerciful servant who's responded, who's beat up the other servant with the log in his eye, acting like there was a speck that he wanted to take out in the other. Chapter 18, verse 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers, or literally in Greek, the torturers, until he should pay all his debt. So the king says, you're wicked because you were forgiven so great a debt. And you pleaded for patience. I gave you forgiveness and set you free. And you turned around with that grace, that forgiveness, that mercy, and you beat up and imprisoned a fellow sinner who sinned against you. Shouldn't you of all people be merciful and forgiving to your fellow servant? In light of God's extravagant mercy and forgiveness to us, it's the epitome of hypocritical wickedness for us to refuse to forgive our brothers and sisters. Mercy that stops with you is mercy that you've rejected. Forgiveness that stops with you is forgiveness you do not think you actually need. Grace that you are selfish with is grace that you think you're sovereign over. And you're suddenly God on the throne who determines who gets grace and who gets wrath. Who gets mercy and who gets justice. You aren't the king. You don't get to decide who gets grace. You're called to steward the grace that's been given to you. And this parable ends with the master delivering over the jailers, or again, more literally, the torturers, until all of it, this unpayable debt was paid. Clearly, Jesus concludes with a, a picture of eternal judgment in hell. The debt is unpayable by this servant. He's chosen to reject the freedom and forgiveness that was offered. Therefore, he will not merely pay with his earthly life, but with eternal life. And so Jesus concludes the parable by summarizing and applying his point. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. If we have rejected the merciful king's extravagant forgiveness of our unpayable debt, then we must forgive our brothers and sisters from the heart when they sin against us. We cannot enter this faith family by grace and then act like we're the judge of justice and distribute only our wrath. This community is built on the grace of our benevolent, merciful, and forgiving king. How dare we enter by grace only to wield the weapon of the law for those who sin against us? God's mercy ought to be contagious. Once you receive it, you pass it on. It's like, yo, this is so good. Like this grace and mercy and forgiveness is so good and so freeing. I know you sinned against me, but I'm just waiting for you to say you're sorry so I can jump and give you a hug and say, yes, I forgive you. I just just want you to have this grace and mercy that I've received. I just want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. Yes, you've sinned against me. Yes, there's a debt that has come and hurt me. But listen, that debt has been paid. Jesus said it's finished. I forgive you. We turn to Christ and we forgive. 
So I'm going to give you just a few communal lessons from this parable that we learn about forgiveness and about this faith family and the characteristic of forgiveness that ought to typify the faith family. Number one, it's incredibly important that you realize the source of our forgiveness, our king's rich compassion. The source of our forgiveness for one another is not our forgiveness for one another. It's his forgiveness for all of his people. So the source is not in you. It's in Christ. So when somebody sins against you, if you turn to your own resources, it won't happen. You won't set them free. You'll stay guarded. You'll stay self-protective. You will not let them off the hook. You will not set them free. You'll keep them in the bondage of unforgiveness because you're limited in your ability to forgive. Our God is not. He's unlimited in his ability to forgive. So if we're going to give unlimited forgiveness to one another, it can't be from us. It's got to be from him. Christ's grace and mercy, our king's rich compassion. Even now, brothers and sisters, what does our God feel about you as you're guilty and convicted of your sin of unforgiveness in your heart? You know what he feels for you? Splunkinizomai. Compassion. He feels for you what the father felt for the prodigal son when he went running away from home and ruined everything and destroyed all of his inheritance. And the father out looking on the front porch, when the son comes home, what do we read? Luke 15, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish with here with hunger. I will arise, I'll go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and splonknizomai, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him. And kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best rope. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you really don't owe him for your sin debt. He paid it all. He really paid it all. He's not like he's not withholding like, yeah, but you got to do your. No, no, he really paid it all. You really are free. If you're in Christ, you really are forgiven. You really are free. You owe nothing. Christ paid it all. You really are free. His account of mercy, that source of mercy must be the source. You forgive brothers and sisters when they sin against you. Not your own. He's supernaturally wealthy with forgiveness. Paul in Ephesians 1 In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. You forgive others with the rich grace that's been given to you in Christ. You cannot pay or you cannot forgive others' sin in your own strength or with your own payment. You do it with Christ. This kind of forgiveness is not something you muster up by your own efforts. Look away from yourself and look to Christ. That's where you find the source of forgiveness. That's where we find Paul saying Colossians 2, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So again, we must know Christ is the source of our forgiveness. Secondly, we get motives for extravagant forgiveness in this parable. So what are the motives for extravagant forgiveness? Number one, a high view of your sin against God. 
So, like, you need to understand, no, no, my sin against God is massive. Billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars. And understanding that leads you and motivates you to forgive rightly when you understand rightly others' sin against you. So a high view of your sin against God, how, how can you increase that? That's a great community group discussion tonight. How can we increase our view of our sin against God? How can we calculate that more accurately against God? How do, and you, you got to know his standards. You, gotta, you can't hide from your sin uh, or hide your sin from his holiness. you got to look at it. you got to see how holy he is. you got to see how sinful you are. So again, a high view of your sin against God motivates extravagant forgiveness. But don't stop there. You must also have a high view of God's forgiveness in Christ. So you must see he's infinitely more holy than I once thought. I'm infinitely more sinful than I once thought. Oh, that means the cross is infinitely more beautiful than I once thought. So you want to see the holiness of God. You want that to increase. You want to see the extravagance of the forgiveness in the cross. You want that to increase. How can you increase good conversation to have in community group even at Christmas be thinking no no, he came he was born to die the cradles for the cross then the crown like think about the story and what Christ has done to save you and bring you in right relationship so again a high view of your sin against God a high view of God's forgiveness in Christ but also a high view of judgment day the king is going to settle accounts I think one of the things that plagued the church the most right now is we don't take Judgment Day seriously. Brothers and sisters, it's coming. You will give account for your whole life to God on Judgment Day. And no excuses will fly then, only honesty. So we ought to think about that day and live this day in light of that day. So increase your view of standing for Now listen, we're not talking about to get in. We get in by trusting in Christ alone. But we will give account for how we live this life. And there's a real threat at the end of this passage that if you cannot forgive your brothers and sisters, then you've rejected forgiveness of Christ to begin with. You won't get in. Not that you can lose your salvation, but if you reject it from the get-go, you rejected it from the get-go. So again, there should be a judgment, a high view of judgment. No, no, no. Every every secret, secret will be exposed before the judgment seat of Christ. So man, I want that to increase. I want my view of God and his holiness to increase. I want my view of the cross and his love to increase. And I want my view and knowledge and understanding of judgment day to increase. And then let me give you just a few marks of extravagant forgiveness. That you know you're experiencing the kind of forgiveness taught in this parable. Marks of extravagant forgiveness. Number one, you, set, you actually set people free from penalty and debt. Like the kind of extravagant forgiveness Christ gives to his people means when people sin against you and you forgive them, you set them free from the debt they owe you. You don't treat them like you owe me. You're in my debt. You're restored to them. You treat them like their debt has been paid. They don't owe you. And it hasn't even been paid by you. It's been paid by Christ. So you're joyfully anticipating forgiving people, saying, no, no, he paid for my sin too and he paid for yours. We're good. I forgive you. I love you. Why? Because Christ died. He paid it all. All to him we owe. So let's be back in right relationships. You treat one another. You set one another free. You don't bring it up in future arguments and beat them up with it all over again. No, you set them free. You don't withhold your affection because of sin. No, you set them free. Your affection goes out. You set them free from the penalty of debt. This is the kind of extravagant forgiveness that ought to typify the people of God. Also notice uh, the uh, mark of extravagant forgiveness is it's limitless. Remember where we started. Peter talking about, hey, is seven times enough? Like, I think y'all get the point by now. Who's counting? Not us. Not followers of Christ. 
I'm not keeping tabs on how many times you sin against me. Look, me and, me and Nias, my son, we love stats and sports, so we love stats. In the kingdom of Christ, we don't keep stats on each other's sin. We don't, we're not keeping stats. It's limitless. I forgive you. How many times have I forgiven you? I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> like, I've just received this abundance of forgiveness, so I've got it to give to you. I'm not keeping count with how many times you've sinned against me, or how, you're not keeping count how many times I've sinned against you. We're freely and abundantly forgiving one another in a limit, limitless, limitless amount. Now, again, this is assuming confession and repentance and asking for forgiveness. So we're not talking about the person who's abusing you and just repeating it. That's not, that's not the conversation we're having in this text. We can have that one. That's just not the one we're having right now. And last mark of extravagant forgiveness, notice it's heart deep. He said, you got to forgive from the heart. This is not mere external formality. So when you confess your sins to one another and say, I've sinned against you. This is how I've sinned against you. This is how that hurt you. I am sorry. Will you forgive me? And you say, yes, I forgive you. And you set them free. That's got to be true in the heart. So we're not talking about the, like this, you know, if any parent who's ever parented children. It's like, all right, I apologize to your brother. I'm sorry. All right, I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. That, that's not what we're talking about. Right? That's not forgiveness from the heart. So no, no, no. There's an acknowledgement. No, no, no. I've sinned against you. I owe you a debt. It's substantial. And I'm asking for the free gift of pardon. A gift that I know you can't give on your own unless you look to the king who set us free. And then from the heart, you say, no, no, I'm going to look to the cross of Christ. I'm going to remember that $6 billion debt he's cleared against me. And from the wealth and generosity of that, then I can forgive your sin against me from the heart, not just with my lips. And friends, I just want you to know the freedom and healing you long for might be on the other side of repentance for unforgiveness. Some of you are bound up, and my heart goes out to you this morning. Again, I'm not blaming you for the sin. If you've been sinned against, that sin was not your fault. Your unforgiveness, that is your fault. So you're responsible for forgiveness. They're responsible for their sin against you. Their sin against you is not your fault. You will give account for you refusing to forgive even though you've been forgiven. That's in your, like, so the very thing that might have you locked up and not being healed is you not forgiving a sinner. I just want you to be healed. So again, this is not to blame you for the original sin. You may be the victim of that, that sin. But there's to say, no, but there's $6 billion of grace given to you in an account deposited for you that you might set that, set that sinner free in your heart and you yourself even be free. Unforgiveness in the heart, no, can hinder your intimacy even with God. So as Christians, as we wrap this, this conversation up about what should typify our experience and our uh, the characteristics of our community. Understand, when you come into relationship with God through Christ, there is this vertical relationship, but it brings you into all these horizontal relationships. They can get messy and difficult. You're going to sin against them. They're going to sin against you. You're going to need lots of grace from God in Christ. We have lots of grace from God in Christ. But know that even in Jesus, as we just sang the Lord's Prayer, he connects the dots between this relationship and these relationships. Matthew 6, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then Jesus says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Or Jesus in Mark chapter 11, verse 25, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father uh, 
so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So if you realize in the midst of vertical worship to Christ, wait a minute, I've got unforgiveness in my heart. Jesus said, no, no, forgive. This is messed up when this is messed up. Like there's a connection. He said, no, no, set others free. In these, again, we're not talking about those who are unrepentant. We're not talking about abuse. That's not the conversation we're having. We're talking about the brother or sister who sinned against you in natural relationships in the healthy Christian community. And Jesus says, no, you forgive. So if your prayers can be hindered, you feel like God's a million miles away, perhaps it's because forgiveness in your heart's a million miles away from someone it needs to be given to. And maybe the Spirit of God even now would say, no, no, be free. Set them free and you be free. Receive his extravagant grace that you might give his extravagant grace. Humility, accountability, and forgiveness. That should mark us as God's new covenant community. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the mercy of Christ.